Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Well, despite the Wagner Group's claim to have more or less taken back moot, the Ukrainians appear to be holding on and activity has dropped away as exhaustion takes its toll on both sides. Bilal will, of course, give the Ukrainians a breather while they build up their resources for the forthcoming offensive. And for the Russians, it will be an opportunity to strengthen their defences. We'll be looking into all that as well as the consequences of Finland's very speedy accession to NATO, as well as the assassination of a pro-war blogger who's blown up in a cafe in St. Petersburg. Uh, let's start with that, Saul. That was a sort of characteristically murky affair, wasn't it, with uh, a very widely spaced cast of suspects, the Russian states claiming that the Ukrainian Secret Service was behind it, quite predictably, I suppose, uh, with the help of supporters of the jailed anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny, equally predictably, I suppose. But others are saying, uh, meanwhile, that it was a state operation and part of the ongoing spat between the Ministry of Defence and uh, the Wagner boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin. What do you reckon? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, we've been here before too, haven't we? The dead blogger, I should say, is a real piece of work. He goes by the name of Vladlen Tatarsky, but his real name is or was Maxim Formin. So let's call him that. He comes from Donetsk and was in jail for armed robbery when he was freed by pro-Russian forces. He then transformed himself at some point into a pro-war propagandist, which of course does not mean that he's pro the Russian army top brass. Quite the contrary. So he's been doing his fair share of bashing Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, and Gerasimov, the Russian commander in Ukraine, and basically pushing the Prigozhin line that the war is being lost not by the troops, but by the high command. So he's clearly not popular with the military top brass. And another possible clue is that the cafe where he was blown up in, in St. Petersburg is owned by Prigozhin, and he himself, that is Prigozhin, was going to speak there at some point. Prigozhin has hinted darkly that the attack was aimed at him without specifying who was behind it. But the person who's actually been arrested in connection with uh, the blast is from the opposite end of the spectrum. She's a young woman called Daria Trepova. She's 26. She's got a bit of an anti-war record. She was arrested way back in February last year for taking part in an anti-war demonstration. And the Russian investigative committee, which handles major crimes, is claiming that she was the agent of a joint conspiracy between the Ukrainian secret services and supporters of Navalny. Uh, there's some interesting footage you can see um, anywhere on the internet of her going into the cafe carrying a box, inside of which is a statuette, which was later presented to Formin uh, before it exploded, killing him and, and wounding many of the people that were gathered there to hear him give a talk. People have drawn attention to the Russian tradition of female assassins, uh, citing the uh, killing in 1881 of, of Tsar Alexander II, known as the Liberator. He uh, abolished serfdom. And that killer there was a young woman called Sofia Perovskaya, who was a leading light in the revolutionary terrorist group calling itself the People's Will, Narodnaya Volya. And that was in St. Petersburg as well. And of course, there was Fanny Kaplan, who tried but sadly failed to kill Lenin in August 1918. But all in all, I don't buy that. Daria seems a very unlikely assassin. You know, she worked in a vintage clothes shop. I think it's more likely, as her husband suggests, that she was a patsy who was duped into delivering the exploding statuette. 
And the claim that, that she's connected to Navalny is a smear. I mean, she might be a supporter of Navalny, but I, I very much doubt she's an agent of some Navalny terror operation. I mean, that's not his style at all. But he is coming up for trial fairly soon, so this might be a, a useful bit of uh, quasi-pseudo-evidence in the prosecution armory. Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? We're, we're hearing all these conflicting uh, reports of responsibility. There's also been a claim from an outfit called the National Republican Army. Sounds like something out of Ireland in the, uh, in the 1970s, Patrick, which may be linked to another spectacular bombing, the one that killed Daria Dugina, the pro-war activist and daughter of ultra-nationalist propagandist Alexander Dugin back in August. Now, my own belief is in line with Prigozhin's claim that this is more likely to be another episode in the ongoing war between the Russian military establishment and Wagner. And let's not forget, Patrick, that the FSB has a history of using bombs to assassinate opponents, smear the opposition, and in the case of Chechnya, almost 20 years ago, providing a justification for going to war. Of course, yeah. Well, like we said, not much action on the battlefield at the moment, but uh, strong signs that we're moving on to the next phase. I attended a briefing this morning by Western officials, and there were lots of indicators that the dynamic is now in the process of shifting, with Ukraine getting into full preparation mode for the offensive and the Russians stealing themselves to uh, withstand the blow. Before we get there, there, there was some comment at the briefing on the fast-tracked arrival of Finland into the NATO fold and how this has had an immediate impact on the military situation in Ukraine. Basically, Russia now has to treat Finland not as a neutral, but as a potentially hostile state on its border, which means they've got to put troops up into that area facing Finland, which it, of course, can ill afford to do, um, because it means any troops they put there won't be available for use on the Ukrainian front. No, and it's a huge border. I mean, in effect, I think the statistics we're hearing is that Russia's border with NATO countries has now doubled. So the question is, will they be able to do that? Will, will they have the troops? And you're quite right to suggest that they might not, Patrick. As I understand it, the briefers were saying that basically they've got nothing to spare and the chances of raising new troops are heavily constrained. The intelligence assessment is that Russia needs 400,000 more troops to make up losses, keep the war in Ukraine going and fulfill its ongoing security needs. But where are they going to come from? They've increased the length of conscription duty, raised the age of service, but stopped short of another mobilization, interestingly, clearly fearing the political consequences. Even if they get the men, Saul, so you know, who's going to train them? All the trainers are either fighting or they're dead or wounded. So they'd be sending men into battle with a gun in their hands, and, and that's about it. Uh, whereas on the Ukrainian side, these officials were pretty sanguine about their ability to handle the losses that they're undoubtedly suffering. We still don't know how many, of course. Uh, and they've got a very well-oiled system for rotating people out of the front line. They still have a reserve of trained, not necessarily battle-tested troops, but very highly trained compared to their Russian counterparts. Many of them, of course, having been trained outside the country in the UK and Europe and etc. And they're also reorganizing their brigade, their core structures, clearly to get ready for this offensive. It's interesting, isn't it? The number of hints we're getting from Western officials, as you say, Patrick, that the offensive is imminent. But what about the date? Were there any hints about when it might start? Well, not really. I mean, I asked a question about weather. I mean, it seems to me weather is a big factor. The ground's got to be hard enough to allow uh, these very heavy, actually, main battle tanks to move around without getting 
bogged down. It's still pretty wet there. But strangely, they, they didn't seem to have, um, be able to provide any uh, precise information about when the summer actually arrives in Ukraine or that part of Ukraine. But there are other signs that they were prepared to talk about, uh, that the build-up's already pretty advanced. Things that you have to have in place, like uh, tank transporters, because you know this is a vast battle space and you can't just drive a, a tank up into the front line. Um, but these are arriving tank transporters to, to move them around to where they're needed. Also, very vital, essential engineering kit, you know, frontline repair shops, bridging equipment, very important to get across waterways, rivers, etc. The stockpiling ammunition. Incidentally, the fears, you know, which we remember from a couple of uh, weeks or maybe more back, um, that they were going to run out of ammunition, that Western supply couldn't keep up with the Ukrainian demand. They don't seem to be realized. Very interesting. And all the pieces of the jigsaw are slowly being put together. And it's interesting, a lot of the op-eds uh, that we're seeing in Western newspapers at the moment, Patrick, are talking about a crisis point uh, looming for Putin. And one of the obvious reasons is that this counteroffensive is really going to have an effect. So when do I think it'll happen? Well, we've already talked about this many times. We, we don't know for sure. But I would say late spring, early summer at the latest uh, to give this offensive enough time really to have effect while the ground is firm. And from what we also gather, the Russians are carrying out extensive defensive preparations, as indeed they might. Uh, as I understand it, they're now using civilian contractors to strengthen defenses in the south, which frankly is another example of how the military capacity on the Russian side has been stretched to the limit by this war. They simply don't have the capacity to do the job themselves. Finally, they, they did have a word to say, this is the briefers, uh, about Bakhmut. You may have seen that Prigozhin released some films showing the Wagner flag flying over the city's administrative building, which I take to be the town hall, emblazoned, actually, with the name of, of uh, Maxime Formin as a tribute to their fallen comrade. But the um, officials weren't sure how genuine it was. And they believe that the Ukrainians are still holding on there and will continue to hold on there. And the Russian gains uh, there and in Makivka, they said, are, are being measured in meters. You know, if they do actually get anywhere, it's not anywhere like the kind of momentum that you need to actually get the city to fall at this moment. Now, Saul, I understand that um, David Alexander, our old friend, he's been in touch with some fascinating developments on the cyber front. He did indeed. I mean, David very generously has has offered, uh, which I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, to keep us updated with any important news on, on the cyber front. And we're getting these updates every two or three weeks. But the latest is really fascinating because it relates to the NTC Vulcan files. I mean, I'll, I'll explain what they are, or at least I'll let David explain what they are in a second. But fascinating because what these files are showing, and these these files were leaked. I mean, the uh, New York Times got their hands on this story, and these files were leaked to Western sources, and they basically show the extent of Russia's cyber warfare capability uh, and the key company that was involved in this. And so I'm just going to read out some of the uh, message that I got from David, and we only got it literally 24 hours ago because it's, it's pretty fascinating. Now, he's confirming the story. That's the first thing we need to know because there have been reports in the press that this is misinformation, um, not according to David. So he writes, NTC Vulcan is an IT consultancy based in Moscow. Somebody with access to that material, not necessarily an insider, but more than 50% 
probability that it is an insider has leaked it to the West to show how they provide support and cyber intelligence warfare capability to Russia's military and intelligence organizations. And here's the interesting thing. In short, Russia now has their own Edward Snowden. Just remind me what this outfit is. It's, it, as I understand it, it's like a, it's a civil, supposedly civilian, what, high-tech surveillance type thing, is it? Or, um, but it's actually operated by two former military guys and is essentially, you know, a subcontractor to the, to the state. Is that, is that right? Exactly. I mean, I think the point here, Patrick, is that if you hire, that is the, the Russian government hire a, a private outfit like this, you've got deniability. And uh, as David goes on to explain, Markov, uh, Anton Markov is the co-founder and chief executive of Vulcan. And he and Alexander Zapsky, the other co-founder, are both graduates of the St. Petersburg Military Academy and former army officers. So there's the clue. The consultancy was set up to provide information security services in the commercial sector and still does work as a front operation. But in 2011, we now know Vulcan received special government licenses to work on classified military projects and to store and process classified information belonging to the state. And in other words, the material uh, that we now we now have from these leaked files highlights the fact that Vulcan worked for several Russian intelligence and military agencies, including FSB, GRU, and SRV, SRV being the foreign intelligence services and various other subunits. And it also gives evidence of their links to the 2014 power blackout in Ukraine, disruption of the Olympics in South Korea, and attempts to skew the outcome of the French and US elections and the creation of some of the best known malware attacks, such as NotPetya, uh, which David's written about before. And he goes on to say that there are diagrams uh, in these leaked files uh, and details of the power generation and energy distribution networks in the United States one of the main motivations behind the development of a U.S. cyber defense capability was the discovery of pre-positioned malware in the control systems of the U.S. power grid. In other words, somebody, almost certainly Russia, was preparing the capability to turn America off, as David puts it, but they were found out before they decided to use it. And as David goes on to say, that's always a risk with resident malware. Somebody will find it before it can be used. Yeah, well, well, that sounds like that's a big gain in the cyber war for the West, isn't it? Because, well, particularly for America, because they've now, knowing all this stuff, they'll, if they haven't already discovered the malware, uh, they'll be able to now root it out and, you know, pre- presumably strengthen their cyber defenses. Okay, well, that's enough for now. Do join us after the break uh, when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Okay, the first question is from uh, Karen O'Shea. He's actually written his name out in the proper Irish spelling um, and given us helpfully pronunciation. So I hope I haven't mangled that, Karen. Hello again, gents. Uh, responding to one of your listeners' questions in relation to why there is a fear in the West of risking a complete breakup of the Russian Federation. Simply put, is it because Russia would descend into absolute chaos? It would be power grab after power grab in each locality. And that's all grand. But when you take into account the Russian stocks of weaponry, especially the nukes, who takes those on? The West fears complete Russian collapse. 
due to the risk of nukes getting flogged down the local market by any Dell boy looking to make a few quid in the absence of centralized state control. Um, yeah, I think there is something in that, actually, Patrick. I mean, I suppose you have to get your head around the fact that Russia itself, Russia being the key uh, component of the Russian Federation, actually controls the nukes. So, uh, but nevertheless, they are placed in other locations. And there is a danger, I suppose, if it all goes to pot, that some of them might get on the open market. So yeah, good point. I think the West, more more generally speaking, Patrick, does not want a complete breakup of the Russian Federation. Yes, I think that's always a central thought, worry, concern in uh, calculations about what happens when a, a foe that you might have who you would, in an ideal world, wouldn't exist. You've got to actually look at what happens uh, if they are removed. I'm thinking particularly of um, Iraq and Saddam Hussein. So under uh, George Bush Sr., the thinking very much was, okay, um, the, we, we don't like Saddam. Uh, he's got to be put back in his box, but he's going to stay in his box. And so it's containment. It's not destruction. For precisely the risks that they knew they were running were, were, were very evident when his son actually decided to go all the way. Uh, and the whole place... Uh, fell apart in short order, and, and we're still living with the consequences. So I think that'll be very much in the minds of of American planners when they're trying to uh, game the future. So yeah, I think um, be careful what you wish for. Got one here from Global Unionist. That's his Twitter name. Uh, he says, "Love the podcast." Uh, are you ever concerned that the seemingly cutting edge information and intel that you receive and broadcast also plays into Russian hands? What do you think about that sort? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I'd love to think that um, the, the FSB is monitoring our podcast. You know, a few more listeners in, in, in Russia would be very handy. But we really only have a handful. And in reality, Patrick, I mean, you'll know this from your work as a, as a journalist. I mean, we're given enough information for all kinds of reasons for keeping Western support going for the war. But we're not going to be given vital intelligence information by Western officials or Ukraine, for that matter, that is, is actually going to be useful for Russia. I don't, I don't believe that for a minute. Yeah, yes, indeed. Okay, we've got another question here from Gretch in UK. Hi, gents. Loving the podcast, which is one of my essential weekly listens. I'll be interested to hear what the role of the Ukrainian police has been during this conflict. I've just retired from the police and often wonder how the British police would operate in similar circumstances. Patrick, got a thought on that? Well, I think the, I think the police are just being policemen uh, by and large, but there is such a thing as the special police forces, which is Spetsialny Politsky Silyi. I think it's something like that anyway. Uh, and they're um, a Ukrainian volunteer corps. Uh, they were set up way back in 2014, uh, from drawn from, from regular policemen, and they, they, they're formed into companies, and they've been fighting, you know, in the Donbass and ever since as a kind of paramilitary force, uh, first of all, against pro-Russian separatists and now against the Russians themselves. So there's something for the Met to think about. Um, perhaps they could get together and have their own international brigade of cops to go and fight the good fight. Yeah, a couple of other thoughts. Um, it's, some of the police from Odessa, I think it was, uh, featured in that rather wonderful documentary that uh, we interviewed the 
producer uh, many episodes ago, and they had volunteered basically from their duties as policemen to fight on the front line. And also, if I remember rightly, Patrick, in France, the, the you know their 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 anti terrorist organization is a part of the police, isn't it? You know, we've got the S. BS and the SAS, which of course are military organizations. So, so you do get this kind of curious crossover in some countries uh, between police paramilitary organizations, don't you? Okay, we've got another one here from Rob. Um, hi, if the new real Cold War is between China and the US, then here we have Russia and Ukraine both acting as proxy forces. So whilst China is not the driving force for the conflict, Russia is, the conflict sits within a wider ontology uh, where China and US are the key players, not Russia. What are your thoughts? Well, very good point, Rob. Patrick, do you basically agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think there is there is a sort of you know strong element of truth in that. Uh, I think it's a the situation is developing all the time, but I think it's sort of heading in that direction. Uh, I'm always reminded, actually, or increasingly reminded of the Spanish Civil War, um, and you could look back and see big echoes today in, in what was happening back then in the in the 19, late 1930s, when you essentially you have a sort of cockpit which is separate from the interests of the main players. And in that cockpit, these two big worldviews are being fought out. So you've got communism or socialism or anywhere kind of left interpretation of the world, surrogate versus a fascist surrogate. And so you could say you're looking at the same thing here. You've got on one side, you've got an authoritarian nationalism, uh, the interest of those, i.e. China and, and Russia versus a democratic globalist capitalist a Western philosophy worldview. Okay, we've got one here from Jeffrey Russell, who's, we often mention this Stalingrad metaphor, uh, that's going to come up a bit later on. But he he's referencing the Winter War, the, the war with 1939 war between Russia and Finland, interesting, actually, in, in light of recent events. And he's um, saying that, uh, that, you know, it hit to his mind, that seems like a worthwhile historical comparison with a heavily outnumbered, outgunned, outarmored Finland actually managing to hold off the Russians against everyone's expectations. So right until March 1940, and all without any assistance from the outside. Do you think that's a valid comparison, Saul? It is a good uh, comparison. Uh, And of course, the big difference, which he also mentions, is that uh, the Finns managed to hold off Russia until Russia uh, regrouped uh, rethought, uh, replanned the invasion, and the second invasion was successful and eventually forced the Finns to submit. The difference, of course, is that Finns didn't have strong Western support. There was some talk, actually, interestingly, Patrick, as I'm sure you remember, of sending uh, a mission, a military support to Finland. But of course, it was terribly difficult to get to. Now, it's very different. You've got NATO on the border of Ukraine. And I think, I think the broader point that Jeffrey's trying to make is that without that immediate support from the West, Ukraine probably would have gone under in the subsequent months. Well, that may or may not be true. And how quickly that have gone under, nobody knows. But the chances of them winning the war without Western support uh, would have been vanishingly small. That's, uh, we do agree with that. Okay, here we've got one from Ed Butler, um, based in Kuala Lumpur. As an old war studies student, he's a huge fan of the podcast. 
he'd love to hear us shedding a little more light on the sanctions regime. For example, how effective is it proving, but also more pointedly, can we expect sanctions on Russia and its leadership to end immediately at the point of a negotiated peace? Or assuming Ukraine manages to claim victory, would sanctions come to an end immediately or would that depend on certain contingencies like the paying of reparations or the handing over of Putin to the ICC? What do you think, Patrick? Well, I think uh, very briefly to answer the second question, I think that uh, sanctions will be in place for quite a long time after any ceasefire. But I think this is a really interesting subject. And rather than going into it now in a kind of, you know, less than fully prepared way, we're going to take up your suggestions and get an expert in down the line to do a, a full interview on it. Yeah. Okay. Now, a question from uh, Jack from Great Yarmouth on uh, Republican voters and the fact that we flagged up the dangers if one of the two front runners for the Republican presidency get in. Um, Trump, of course, has recently been indicted. In fact, he's appearing in court at the moment, hasn't he, Patrick? So w- whether or not he's going to be available to take up the presidency, if, if indeed he wins or is allowed to continue in the race is another matter. But the broader question is, why are American Republicans, who are obviously right of centre in their politics, why do they not see the bigger picture and the fact that actually money spent on supplying weapons to Ukraine now is, uh, you know, doing the job that American troops may have to do down the line in obviously curbing Russian ambitions, but also China in the longer term. And it is a perfectly reasonable question, actually, isn't it? There is this long tradition of isolationism within American politics. We know that. But anyone who has any sense uh, and can accept that China is the bigger problem, which most of the Republicans can, um, why do they not see this stopping of Russia as a kind of proxy of China, an important job to be done now, uh, and you're doing it with money rather than uh, American lives? I mean, it's a reasonable point to make, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I completely take that. But I mean, you know, we're we're up in the air here, aren't we? As it stands, American support is pretty solid, and the American presidential elections are some time away, and the positions that certainly DeSantis is taking now may be much more to do with, you know, domestic politics, building up his campaign for the nomination rather than actually what he intends to do if he ever gets to the White House. I'm going to run two together here now from Roger Bentley and Jack Gargan. And they're both making the same point, um, which is that uh, when we talk about Stalingrad, of course, the role of the sniper in Stalingrad was quite important and asking whether the same is true of what's going on in Bakhmut. Well, of course, Stalingrad was indeed a, a sniper's happy hunting ground. There's a famous Russian sniper. Do you remember him? Saw Vasily Zaitsev, who's meant to have killed 225 Germans. He wrote a rather bloodthirsty memoir. And I'm just going to, I dug out a little quote from it uh, where he says, As a sniper, I've killed more than a few Nazis. I have a passion for observing enemy behavior. You watch a Nazi officer come out of a bunker, acting all high and mighty, ordering his soldiers every which way, and putting on an air of authority. The officer hasn't got the slightest idea that he only has a few seconds to live. So pretty chilling stuff. He had a duel with a German sniper, Erwin Koenig. Uh, he eventually won it. Koenig was killed. And of course, it was turned into a movie, wasn't it? I think with, uh, was it Brad Pitt playing the sniper? 
Yeah, exactly right. And they've always fascinated people, haven't they, snipers? The, the military forces themselves uh, treat snipers very harshly when they get their hands on them. I mean, many examples in the Second World War um, of all sides, in fact, not just the, you know, the, the more brutal regimes, uh, just dispatching uh, snipers out of hand. It's sort of, there's a kind of sense that it's an ungentlemanly form of warfare, but I, I can't imagine why, Patrick, an ungentlemanly form of warfare to me is sending missiles into uh, blocks of civilians not shooting other combatants on the field of battle and snipers that you know have to put themselves at risk and they also have to endure extraordinary privation in the course of their business this is not a you know i'm not a flag waver for snipers per se but they do seem to me just to be another part of you know the military framework yeah they they, they are a breed apart though i think snipers i've read a few of my time and they do have something uh, rather kind of um how should we say, rather kind of sinister about them. I think it takes a certain mindset. And you're absolutely right. It's a very dangerous business because you have to put yourself essentially in a kind of high, isolated place, which means that if things go wrong, <clears throat> you can very quickly be captured. And as you say, rough justice meet, meted out. I remember in my uh, Lebanon reporting days in Beirut, snipers often featured there. And if they ever got hold of a sniper, you, almost always operating out of a high-rise building, they would uh, simply toss him off, the, off that high-rise building, so not a nice way to go. But in um, in Bakhmut, you know, they, they have actually played a very uh, significant role, as far as I can tell. It again, you know, firing down from a lot of high-rise buildings in Bakhmut. And last month, there was a, a report of an attempted infiltration by Wagner special forces across the river, which was uh, spotted and basically driven back with very heavy casualties, just simply by a couple of snipers. So they can be very, very effective. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, let's move on to the last couple of questions. Uh, we've got one here from Matthias Verheyen in Netherlands. Uh, and this actually was a question that's been asked by someone else. So, you know, we're doubling up these questions in this particular one. And he says that in episode 38, you were discussing the fact that the authoritarian regimes are willing to accept appalling losses of human life and material. Matthias's question is, could it be possible that modern population demographics are no longer able to support these kinds of losses? And he gives the example of Russia already seeing manpower shortages on the front line and in the domestic industrial base. And more than that, a point made by another question, uh, it's it's seeing a dropping uh, population, basically. This is a crisis. Both Ukraine and Russia, like most developed countries, have an aging population. And this would be exacerbated by hundreds of thousands of casualties of young men. Uh, although, of course, in the Russian case, there are an awful lot of criminals that no doubt they were quite glad to see the back of. But his broader point is in the coming decades, this could cause the economy to collapse. The Russian fertility rate he ends is 1.5 and that of Ukraine is 1.22. But yes, the broader point here, uh, Matthias, is absolutely right. And people are beginning to discuss what is going to happen in the future for both uh, Russia and Ukraine with the loss of so many uh, key young men. Just a few um, statistics. So, yeah, the, the Russian fertility rate, 1.5, is pretty much the same as just slightly below the UK uh, fertility rate, which is 1.56. Germany's roughly the same. France is a bit higher, 1.83. But how that compares with, say, just before the First World War, and it's very significant difference. Uh, so back then, about 1910, the UK was 3.13, so pretty much double what it is now. And Germany was 4.29, so considerably higher. So, yeah, I mean, losses are much, much harder to replace uh, now than they were then. And the general overall trend, uh, as you say, is a very, very steep uh, decline over the last 100 and 
20 years odd. Uh, so yeah, you, that has a significant effect on the sustainability of the sort of war uh, that is being fought in Ukraine. Okay, last question. This is from uh, Dave in the New Forest. Uh, and his question relates to Putin's continuing threat of nuclear uh, weapon deployment. And this is happening, interestingly enough, as we've already reported, it's happening in neighboring Belarus. And, and also going back to the question of, you know, the increased border with NATO countries because of Finland's accession to NATO. Uh, what seems likely to be happening up there is they are going to start installing uh, nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons to threaten Finland and hope that in some ways this is going to make up for the lack of troops up there. But Dave's broader point is, given he's been making waves, that's Putin for some time about this, that's nuclear saber rattling. Do you suspect a new Star Wars program may have been restarted? And that's obviously in the United States or even completed. Uh, Patrick, what do you think about this? Have we had any hints of this? Well, I don't know, but I would be very surprised if they weren't looking at this. Just to recap on what that, you know, Star Wars was the Strategic Defense Initiative. That was the nickname given to the SDI, which was a proposed missile defense system, which was meant to basically put a shield up around the United States to prevent it being attacked by intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles, of course. And it was uh, Ronnie Reagan was behind it. He announced it way back in 1983. It was incredibly expensive. Um, but it was making considerable progress. And because the Russians had to come up with their own version of it, this was a huge contributory factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. They simply didn't have the resources or the money to, to keep the program going. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was much derided at the time. But I think as time passed, it, or certainly in these current circumstances, it's looking like um, maybe something that should have been continued. I can't remember really exactly when it was discontinued. And something tells me that Donald Trump did actually look into uh, reviving the program. But um, like I say, I'd be very surprised if the Pentagon uh, hadn't dusted off those files and was uh, looking at it pretty closely. Okay, that's all we have time for this episode. But please join us next Wednesday for another big interview. And of course, following on from that next Friday, when we'll be recapping the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.